readers. Welcome to Books Connect Us from Penguin Random House. This is a podcast about staying connected with each other and the stories and authors who inspire us. Today's guest is Eric Larson, author of The Devil in the White City and his latest The Splendid and the Vile, which looks at how Winston Churchill and the British citizens dealt with the bombings of World War II. He's interviewed by Abby Wright, senior editor of Read It Forward and co-host of the Adaptables podcast. In this conversation, Eric discusses his new book and also puts our situation today in historical context. So let's now join Abby Wright and Eric Larson. I am Abby Wright, and I'm so glad to be here with Eric Larson, author of, most recently, The Splendid and the Vile. Welcome, Eric. Thank you very much. Well, we are in some wild times right now, but I know you do most of your work from your home office, so I just wanted to know, do you have any tips for people who are now being thrust into a work from home situation? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I am, I am absolutely used to used to working uh, from home by now. I better be. Um, I guess the, uh, the my best advice is, uh, you know, always take breaks. Um, have a lot of coffee if you can drink coffee. Um, be sure to uh, figure out a time when you're going to knock off for the day because work can easily swell to fill the entire day. Um, and if you're in a place now where you are allowed or can and feel comfortable doing so, definitely get out for at least one walk, maybe two. And if you do something that's some kind of exercise that doesn't require uh, uh, hanging out with other people, definitely do that. I mean, like running and, and, and walking and so forth. Oh, those are good tips. Um, so are there situations in history that relate to what we are dealing with right now? Are, and are there any lessons that we can take from our predecessors, from those examples? Well, you know, unfortunately, there are, <laughs> history has many lessons, uh, many similar, similar kinds of, of, of moments. I mean, you know, the, the uh, Spanish flu epidemic of 1918 comes to mind, but I'm, I'm really not an expert on that. But what I can talk about is, for example, um, uh, the, the period of, of uh, the Blitz in London, the Blitz and, and the subsequent bombing campaign that continued until really into um, May of 19, March of 1941. Um, you know, I, I, it, it's, it's, well, it's a little bit hard to make parallels, um, only because um, um, at least during the Blitz, you could hang out with friends in bars. Now, the bar might get blown up, but you took that, you took that chance. But, but there are similar, similarities in the sense that, you know, right now we confront this, this invisible foe. And, and even though you think, well, okay, the, 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 the German bombers and so forth were, were visible, in fact, there's a parallel because you didn't know, bombing was so inaccurate that there was really no way to tell who was going to get blown up when. So, so you really had no way of judging, of telling. Uh, you, you could... If you pointed to somebody on the street and you said, there's no way for you to predict that that particular person was going to lose his or her life that day. But it was a situation where you knew that, that hundreds elsewhere in the city would lose their lives for sure. It was that kind, of, that kind of division. And we kind of have that same situation now. You can't point to anybody on the street in New York City and say, well, that person's not going to make it until through the end of the week. But you do know beyond doubt that, that um, especially now as this thing is ramping up, 
that um, that uh, uh, scores, perhaps hundreds, will will die in 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 one night until this this virus cools off. Well, and I wonder if another similarity between our current situation and the Blitz is the sort of light um, that emerges in a time of darkness, right? Like I'm thinking of. Um, well, I'm thinking of victory gardens in the, in the U.S., but um, there must have been great examples during the Blitz of, of courage and hope that appeared even in the darkest of times. Yeah, well, during the Blitz, you know, people, people did, um, they did, they did carry on, you know. Um, uh, after, the initial, after the initial terror, um, uh, um, uh, people, people settled into their, their routines, you know the 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 German, the German Air Force um, began um, limiting its attacks to to nighttime raids, and this left the day, once people became pretty comfortable with the the idea that they really would not likely get bombed during the day, but so that during the day their lives became um, uh, kind of a, a almost a almost a parody of normal. Um, they would uh, commute to work. Um, they would bring their their gas masks and they would wear their identity discs in case they got blown to smithereens and couldn't be identified. Um, then they went to work. Um, there were concerts at noon and at the National Gallery um, uh, uh, deliberately timed so that, so that people would not have to be out after, after dark when the bombers would come. And then their days would, would, uh, you know, would end. They'd race home to put up the blackout material on their windows and then cope however, however they could. And it, it, you know, eventually it got to the point where where um, people just just stayed home in their 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 bedrooms at night or in their living rooms or their basements. Um, it is a myth that 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 uh, everybody you know fled fled into the into the tube shelters into the tube stations for shelter. Um, relatively few people did. Um, and life life um, attained a certain certain bizarre level of, level of normalcy. Now, whether we can do that uh, now with coronavirus, you know, I mean, obviously we can't do restaurants, we can't do social gatherings, and that's a real a real loss in terms of building camaraderie and stealing ourselves for for whatever lies ahead. But people are, you know, people are doing some amazing things. I mean, there was just uh, just something um, posted floating around the other day about the. From the Berkeley School of Music, I, I, I believe it was that uh, that did this amazing version of uh, what the world needs now, with their young musicians and singers, you know, uh, isolating all over the place, using using uh, the technology of and actually I don't know what technology, but it was brilliant, you know, these 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 uh, remote nodes of of, of 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 music all coming together in in one uh, in one uh, well uh, orchestrated piece. Mm. Well, and how do the responses by leadership and government compare to the Blitz versus today? Yeah. Well, that's the, yeah. You know, one of the things that, um, one thing that, that really um, comes through to me is that uh, um, uh, uh, Churchill, um, you know, I, I don't really like to engage in speculative history, but I, I, I'm perfectly willing to go out on a limb here. Um, because uh, one thing I can just just about guarantee is that Churchill would would have handled this situation um, very differently than the current administration in 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 Washington, and and I, I you know Churchill Churchill first of all Churchill had a had a strong moral core which alas I think is 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 absent, um, 
at the moment at the, at the uh, in the Oval Office, um, and and he he recognized the the the, the struggles that, that people are having, and he recognized what people really wanted to hear, so he would structure his speeches in in what, what I think was a very compelling way. You know, we all we all know the, the the great lines and so forth, but there was much more to his speeches than those than those than those lines. He would he would. Um, he would first begin with a uh, with a, a a sober assessment of facts of the reality. He would not sugarcoat. He would not tell happy stories or or make up you know a, a happy outcome. He told the absolute truth and in, in sometimes in the darkest way possible, but it was a sober assessment of the situation. But then he would follow with what what were what were the the grounds? What was the cause for optimism? And again, not happy talk, but real. Real, um, real things that were being done or could be done to help Britain prevail, you know, during the Blitz and, and to help pr- prevail during a situation like what we've got now. Then he would invariably end with, um, with one of those great rhetorical flourishes that would literally have people rising from their seats, um, uh, you know, like, well, or at least metaphorically, rising from their seats and ready to march out into the street and do battle with, with the, you know, with the Germans in this, in that case, and and now ready to at least steal themselves and maybe start contributing money to food banks and, and and to you know to pizza delivery in New York. That's a big thing now with uh, one <laughs> one fund trying to deliver pizzas to healthcare workers, which I think is a brilliant thing. So people are rising to the occasion within, within, uh, within, uh, within the confines of what they can do. But but if they are now, it's not because of leadership. It's because of of you know they recognize that this is this is a problem and parts of this country are hurting. And then in, and in, and in certain local regions, um, um, there's very fine leadership. I mean Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York State, has has risen to the occasion. Um, uh, people are sort of starting to think of him as a Churchillian uh, uh, kind of character. So um, anyway. Well, let's switch gears a little bit because I want to dive into your latest book, uh, The Splendid and the Vile. Can you tell us a little bit, we've touched on it briefly, but can you tell us a little bit about what The Splendid and the Vile is all about? Yeah, it, it, it's really about um, uh, trying, to, trying to figure out exactly how Churchill and his family and his circle of close advisors how they actually endured the, the the German air campaign, the Blitz, and what followed, um, uh, you know, on a daily basis. Like, how did they? How did the the, the Churchills deal with their anxiety about their youngest daughter, uh, Mary Churchill, who was seventeen when the action begins in the book, and then uh, turns eighteen uh, in the course of that first year? Yeah, you know, how did they deal with their anxiety? How did she deal with life? You know, she was a seventeen-year-old girl. She didn't like being being stuck out there at the prime ministerial country estate checkers for her own safety, which is what her parents were doing, you know? So, so it really was, it was an effort to try to come to terms with, with how they really did it, how they got through it. And the whole thing was inspired actually by, by the fact that my wife and I moved to New York city from Seattle. And, and when I moved to New York, I had this epiphany about, about the, the, the nature of nine 11 for those who had lived here at the time versus what we experienced in Seattle when we, we watched the whole thing unfold in real time on TV, yes, but, but you know, coming to New York, I realized how how horrifying the situation really, really had been. How much more, how much more vivid and wrenching because, you know, not only did people um, uh, see ambulances and hear fire trucks and see the smoke and so forth, but they also had that sense of violation of their of their home city. So I started thinking, you know, uh, wouldn't it be interesting to try to get to come to terms with how people 
in London dealt with the, the German air campaign. How did they actually get through it? And I thought at first about doing a, uh, taking a look at the typical London family. And then I thought, wait a minute, why not the quintessential London family, Churchill and Company, which is, which is how that, that book got started. Well, and what is the inspiration for the book's title? The title um, is, comes from a diary entry uh, by a, one of Churchill's uh, private secretaries, um, John Colville. Um, Colville is a great character. He kept a, a very detailed diary, um, daily diary of life at 10 Downing Street. Um, they, they, he and his fellow uh, private secretaries worked in very, very close proximity to Churchill. Um, sometimes too close. Um, but uh, there's one diary entry where, where Colville, he's, he's, he is, he's in a bedroom and he witnesses through the window um, a particularly intense air raid. And he is struck by the, the beauty, this dark sky, the, the bombs, the, 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 the anti-aircraft guns firing away, tracers, the whole, the whole deal. And it's just this real cataclysmic spectacle. And he makes a, a remark that uh, it, it was sort of like, the, it was like this, this it was a juxtaposition of, of natural splendor and human vileness. And so as soon as I read that diary, I thought, that's my title. And it has mm-hmm. pet, and it remained that uh, ever, ever since. Well, it does, it does remind me of walking around a very empty New York City yesterday um, yeah. because it is both haunting and beautiful. Yeah. And you know, somehow the city changes its genetic makeup when the people and the thrum of the energy isn't pounding the pavement. It's, well, a, it's a different place. Very, very, very much so. I mean, it does, there's sort of, there is that Colville and others actually during the Blitz re- remarked often on, on this sort of painful juxtaposition of, of the beautiful weather of that particular spring, of that particular summer, and, 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 and the horrors of this of this, this air campaign. And I, I, I think about that actually uh, quite a bit when I think about New York. You know, Central Park is right now, you know, approaching its full glory, but it's mm-hmm. kind, of a, kind of a scary, scary place at the moment, you know? So um, how, how, how horrible is that? Mm. So you often, Eric, write about fascinating events in history that most of us haven't done a major deep dive on. Um, but but much is written about Winston Churchill. Um, so what made you decide to write about his first year, sort of May of 1940 to May of 1941, uh, as prime minister and do your deep dive into that? Well, you know, it just happened to work out that way that, that the, <laughs> the, the narrative would span a span that year, but by no means did I ever set out thinking, ah, I'm going to do Churchill's first year. What happened was, what happened was, you know, I mean, he became prime minister on May 10, 1940, um, and the German air campaign came to an end um, uh, 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 on May 10, um, 1941. And, and, uh, and when I say it came to an end, I mean, this was the major, uh, the major German air campaign. There were subsequent flare-ups, and, 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 and of course, there were the V-2 and V-1 and V-2 um, aircraft and rockets that came later, but this was, this was the really critical air campaign. Um, and it took place in, in the course of that year, from, you know, between May 10 and, 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 and May 10. It literally came to an end on May 10, 1941. So, and as did two other narrative threads, which is what really drove me to, to do the, to do the, the book in the, in the way that I did. But it did happen to coincide that that was the first year. So there it was. 
I feel like you often find these great gems in the course of your research um, that make it feel so serendipitous, um, but really are, are just laid out in the course of history books. Do you, um, you know, laugh to yourself when you find something sort of so perfect like that? Uh, well, actually, I do. I mean, yeah, it, it, I, I don't necessarily laugh out loud maniacally, but, <laughs> but I do, I do. I, I sometimes I just think, wow, and, and, and you know, that, and that's what drives my choice choice of, of choice of ideas. I don't. I was not drawn to do this book by by Churchill per se. I mean, Churchill's a very interesting character, but I, I did not have a compulsion to write about him. It was this this underlying story: is how on earth did he and his family and his advisors get through this 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 awful nightmare in the in that happened to coincide with the first year of his prime ministry? And then when I found out that these two other narrative threads also came to an end on May 10, 1941. Um, I just was like, it's like I died and gone to heaven. You know, this, this kind of narrative confluence never happens in nonfiction. You know, in, in fiction it happens all the time because you control the action. You can, bring, you can bring the action to a climax and have all these narrative threads come to an end in, in, you know, over a dinner party in a remote cabin or something, right? But, but in the case of nonfiction, you, you don't have that control. But in this case, these things just happened to fortuitously um, come to an end on May 10, 1941. That was a big part, actually, of why I decided to pursue this book, because, because the, the narrative arc, as it were, um, seemed so, uh, so, so clean and so, so, so compelling. Did spending so much time with Churchill, you know, reading his words and examining his actions, make you think differently at all about leadership? Well... You know, I, I, I yes. Um, uh, what it, what it became for me really it was a what a big part of the book became sort of a, a almost a study in leadership because when you're thinking about how did Churchill do it, how did, it's not just about how did he survive, but how did he how did he help uh, help help the British at large survive this? How did he how did he steal them? How did he give them? He didn't give them courage, as he says, but but how did how did how did he embolden the nation to to stand up to this thing and, and survive it? And so. And I, and, and I found it really kind of a refuge in the course of, you know, um, uh, my research, because during that period, of course, America descended into this, this, this realm of political chaos and, and awfulness. And, but here I was reading, um, you know, such compelling things about Churchill and, 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 it, and it really became a place for me to, <laughs> to sort of hide from the present, but also to, to analyze what it was that, that Churchill was so good at doing. And one of the big things, he was, he was, he was a master at, at he, he recognized the power of, of symbolic acts, no matter how small. I mean, even, even something as simple um, and, and minor as his refusal to refer to Hitler by name. He only referred to him as that man or that bad man, which when you think about it is a surprisingly effective way to sort of diminish the power that, that Hitler had over the, the psyche of, 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 of his, his, uh, his victims, if you will. But, you know, that was a tiny thing. But, but on, a, on, a, on a larger scale, whenever, for example, when he would visit, visit the, the ruins of bombed out cities and, and, and talk with people who had experienced this this nightmare, and, and when he would, and, and, and he would invariably show himself to be deeply moved by this experience, which really, really further moved the, moved the populace. But when he was seen to be brave, that helped communicate to others that they could be brave too. You know, bravery is kind of an infectious thing. I, I talk in the book about how he taught people the art of being fearless, and that's really what I'm getting at, is that 
yeah, I mean, here's Churchill, you know, when, when, when an air raid um, would, would occur in London, he was more than likely to go to the nearest roof to watch it than, than to hide in a shelter. Now, this is not necessarily prudent, but this is, <laughs> this is what he did. And in, in one, one raid in particular that I, I found really compelling, it was a very severe raid, and he had, had guests over for dinner, um, and he, he had them up. Uh, he invited them up onto the onto the roof to join him to watch a big air raid underway, and as he was up there, you know, he 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 quoted Tennyson. He quoted a poem called Loxley Hall, which is deemed by some to have sort of foretold uh, the advent of aerial warfare. Now that's a that's a rare leader, somebody who first of all is tough enough and 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 brave enough to go up there to 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 observe an air raid in progress, and second to have the presence of mind to quote Tennyson. So, so, but he was aware of the power of the, these little acts. And when you combine that with his ability um, in, in, in speeches to, to embolden people, to tell them what the reality was, to tell them what the reasons for optimism were, and then to have them to, 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 to just, just so spark courage in them that they, they went forth and all because, you know, began to feel like they were, everybody was in this together. So, so yeah, I, I, I learned a lot about leadership. Hmm. Well, as you read the book, it's difficult not to compare, of course, the political climate of that time with our uh, current political moment. Um, so for me, it was very comforting um, to be surrounded by Churchill's leadership while reading this book. Well, this is one of the odd things about, about the reception of the book, at least as far as I can, I can tell, is that people, and believe me, I did not set out with this intention, but... <laughs> <clears throat> Excuse me, but but people, people do seem to be be finding and or taking solace um, in the book, as if as if it it as if it were a, a, a fable, if you will, about how things ought to be but aren't. <laughs> it's like they're they're sort of like I felt even in, in the course of the research was you know it's, this was a place I wanted to be, and so and and my feeling is you know if we're going if we're going back to a time of you know death and chaos and so forth to find solace things are things are pretty bad right now i want to thank you so much eric larson author of the splendid and the vile uh for chatting with us today this book is absorbing and um, very moving and really really inspiring so thank you so much well thank you but i should also note that something my daughter said she said dad i i, I didn't realize how funny this book was so there you go <laughs> Yes, exactly. And that is something you do so well is, um, you know, drop those bits of, of humor and um, and sort of that serendipitous history nonfiction. It, it feels like you're reading a quite absorbing novel. Good, good. Thank you for listening to Books Connect Us. For more great book recommendations and information about your favorite authors, feel free to follow Penguin Random House on social media or visit penguinrandomhouse.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, go ahead and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps more listeners to find our show. This podcast is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. I've been Aaron Leaf, and until next time, this has been Books Connect Us. Books Connect Us.